Welcome to the Line Cool Podcast. A tennis show presented by Hector and Toby. Hello, welcome to episode nine of the Line Cool Podcast with me, Toby, and my friend Hector. Hector, how are you doing? I'm very good, thanks, mate. I'm very good. I'm I'm kind of sad that I uh, didn't really didn't really get to join in on this one, but we're going to have plenty more. That is because this episode has been pre-recorded in the form of an interview. Our first interview here, our first of many, hopefully on the Line Cool podcast. This interview was with Josh Goodall. Josh is former British number two, represented Great Britain at the Davis Cup and represented England at the Commonwealth Games. It's awesome. I, I was really excited when you shared shared the news with me that we're, we're, we're going to be having an interview because I remember you um, started, started reaching out, uh, emailing people, and it kind of sort of made it feel... <laughs> I don't know, real, if you know what I mean, Have a having a guest on. We can save our listeners from just having to listen to our two voices. They can uh, switch it up a little bit, maybe listen to someone who actually has some actual tennis insight. And one thing uh, I'm kind of excited for is to uh, to, be, to be a listener for the first time, to, to not know what I'm going to be listening to, because uh, I'm not going to spoil it for myself, I'm going to listen to it afresh. Yeah, it would be nice if you both to turn up to the uh, next interview, but yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'll, uh, I'll I'll do all I can. Hopefully, it won't coincide with uh, with a house move this time. Hopefully, it won't be uh, won't be a year's time the next time that we uh, do an interview. You know. Here it is. Without further ado, enjoy the interview with Josh Goodall. Perfect. So I think to start with, what do you make of the ongoing Wimbledon saga? Everything that's going on with uh, Wimbledon at the moment. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's pretty tough to be honest. If if I was a player. Um, I mean, obviously, what's going on in Ukraine and and, and Russia with the war is is devastating, um, and you kind of have to put your personal like um, goals and objectives to the side. But if if I was to play Wimbledon this year, and and if I, if I was defending points or looking to build on my ranking, I'd find it pretty frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. So, do you th- do you think Wimbledon made the right call then by deciding to ban the Russian and Belarusian athletes? I don't know, to be honest. I I, I really don't want to have an opinion either way. Um, it's, it's a really difficult one. Um, it really is. I, I, I can see um, see arguments for both sides. Um, they, they've obviously made a strong stance, Wimbledon. And then ha- what about like, the ATP's response then? Do you think that was justified with them stripping the points? I think that's, that's probably the more controversial um decision um because that really does put a lot of players like if you if especially if you're defending points it's, it's really hard to um to come because grand slam points obviously are far greater than playing in other tournaments so yeah. it, that's going to be the uh the tricky part and i i saw today that there's a couple players that are looking at not uh, they're calling it an exhibition tournament now um and they may not even travel to it so it's going to be interesting to see if there's fallback on the ATP or, or the ITF, sorry, and Wimbledon. Yeah, because I think it was Naomi Osaka said today, didn't she, that she was That's considering right, yeah. not playing at Wimbledon. And, and then Cam Norrie was saying, like, he thinks a lot of people might might think twice about it, uh, whether, it whether it's worth playing or not. I think you'll find that the, 
the players that are ranked around, say, 60 upwards, uh, so 60 to so 120, will probably still be playing it because of the financial benefits of playing a tournament like Wimbledon, like like the, the ATP points that are up for grabs, is also the prize money is far greater than any other tournament, um, other than obviously the other Grand Slams. So I don't financially, I don't see how the lower ranked players can afford to just give it a miss on protest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, personally, I, I feel the players who probably are hit the hardest, obviously outside of the ones who are losing major ranking points, like your Djokovic's or your Berrettini's, whatever, but probably like British players, isn't it? Like ranked in inside, uh, in around the 100, 200 mark, because yeah. Wimbledon, like for yourself, was like the slam that you played at the most, wasn't it? And it's for British players, it's a real opportunity for them to, like you say, A, financially gain, but also it's a good chance to gain some proper um, points as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And also it's an opportunity for the English player or the British players because it, we get to train on the grass um, for a longer period of time than from players from elsewhere around the world. Um, so you could argue that we're, we're a little bit more specialised with the, like the lower ranked players um, when it comes to playing on it. So it's definitely a missed opportunity for them to grab some really good points. Now that these other LTA tournaments still have the ranking points, do you reckon that more people will flood to those tournaments and stuff? Because I've seen Andy Murray's playing um, the Surbiton Challenger, isn't he? Like first time since 2004. Um, it depends. Sometimes, I mean, to be honest, when I was playing, you would still get some big names come to Surbiton if they had bombed out of the French Open really early. Um, because I, it might the dates might be slightly different now, but Surbiton used to... Um, take part during the second week of Roland Garros. So if a big seed had dropped out early of the French Open, then they would come over and play Serbson as like an extra warm-up tournament. So yeah, you you may do, but maybe if, if people are, if, if players are going to not come to Wimbledon, then I doubt they're going to come to Serbson um, yeah. and then just leave. So they're probably going to play the whole, like the whole uh, package of tournaments. Yeah, moving on now to some more kind of questions about about your career and stuff, starting from the beginning, what point in your career did you kind of feel like I've made it? Like, I'm a professional tennis player. Like, this is this is my my career. That's a good question, actually. No one's ever asked that. Um, well, I remember when I was 16 and I was doing my GCSEs, um, and my parents they said to me that I had to reach certain grades um, if I wanted to go as a full time tennis player. So basically just go straight into tennis and not go to college um and I was panicking because I had put so much effort into my tennis around 15 um years old that my I did come off my academic studies um however I did manage to hit those grades um and then I made uh, yeah well, with my parents made the decision to go full-time tennis um but looking back on it that, that was a huge risk um because yeah I, I mean I was ranked I was probably ranked like top three in the country at 16, 17, um, but still miles off being a professional tennis player. In answer to your question, when did I think that I had made it? It's, it's tough because I guess at different stages I felt like I made it because when I look back, obviously yeah, the biggest, the, like the holy grail was, or the big the big thing was getting your first ATP point and becoming officially ranked on the, on the circuit. But now I look back, in fact, as soon as I actually did it, it became minuscule uh, and not a big deal. Um, so then I was constantly setting myself ranking targets. Potentially, like, 
potentially the age of 19. That's probably when I would really say, yeah, okay, I, I, I'm going places. Because at 19, that was when I got my wild card um, into Queens um, and then Wimbledon. And yeah, at, at that age, there wasn't, it's different now, or it's, it's, it's going up and down with like the average age of men on tour. But at that time, there wasn't many people my age playing Grand Slams other than your, your, your top ones like Gasquet, um, Nadal, Djokovic. So yeah, probably 19 when I played my first big, big tournament. Yeah, definitely. That would just be exciting, like playing that big home tournament as well. Did you have like lots of mates and stuff come down and, 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 and watch you at Queens and Wimbledon when you first played? Yeah, I did, but I had a horrible draw. Um, I played Greg Rodzetsky, um, which was so when I was nineteen, he was um, he was still fully playing, and I actually, I think he was still top ten in the world. Um, and not only was he a top ten in the world player, he was also a very well, a ridiculously good grass court player. So it was actually a pretty tough draw. Um, because at Queens, you can get it, it really does go one of two ways. There's never like a medium draw, good draw. It's either a, a good draw or it's a bad draw. Um, and that happened to be a bad draw. Um, yeah, I remember my parents were there, my 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 friends were um were watching. Um that was the first match I played televised as well. So that was on um on BBC, which was- oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess when when you're when you're like first playing your first tournaments. Would you have rather had a draw where you could have potentially thought, oh, I've got, I've got a really good chance here? Or would you have rather had one like a Greg Rosetsky or like a really high-ranked player? Because I guess it just feels like I'm in the big time now. I'm playing these big boys. I think the, I think the best case scenario in a situation like that is to have a good draw first round and then to play one of the big boys in oh, the yeah. second round. Just to get, especially with the way I the way my career went, I was one of these players that I would either lose first round or I would go pretty deep into a tournament. Um, so yeah, I, I think if I had just got that first, broke that duck of my first ATP match at that age, then going into a, a match in the second round against someone like Greg, you have a, a, def, a definite higher percentage of confidence going into the match. I know nowadays they've got the LGA National Tennis Centre down in Roehampton, don't they, where um, yeah. all the British players play. So like you said, you came up against Greg Rosetsky. What was your kind of, I guess, contact with these like really premium British tennis players when you were kind of coming onto the scene? Did you did you train with them at all? Did you see them at all? Yeah, I did. Um, so we, when I was that age, we weren't actually, this This was before um, Roehampton, was even, the NTC was even built. Um, so we actually used to train at Queen's Club. Um, there was two indoor courts on the, I mean, you won't know where it is because when, when Queen's is on, it's, it's, it's so built up and it looks so different. But they're basically the other side of the complex, um, even to where the members play. Um, and that's where the LTA used to train. Um, it seems incredible now because it was only two indoor courts and a small little gym, but that's 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 where we were training. Um, and yeah, Greg, Greg, um, and Henman, Henman not so much, but definitely Greg used to come there a lot. Um, I also did a few trips to La Manga. Um, we used to go in the winter with the LTA um, over like November and December and and train there. And he came a few times to that. So yeah, I was I was on like relatively good um, like awareness or, or talking um, with Greg. I, I knew him pretty well, um, which I guess did help in some sort of um, scenario going into a match against him. But it was still a tough draw. Definitely, yeah. Looking over your career, you won 
20 titles in total, didn't you, over ITF futures and yeah. uh, challenges, etc. Did you have a particular title that was your favourite to win that m- meant the most to you? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know whether this stat still exists, but I, I definitely know when I when I stopped when I stopped playing, I stopped playing around 28, 29. I was the third highest future winner ever. So I won a lot of future tournaments. Um, as to which one was the most memorable, it would probably be not the one I won. It was probably the one I made the final in. Um, and that's purely because remember I said that it was when I went basically uh, the big big goal was to get your first ATP point that's obviously to win your first round in a futures event Um, well I did it but I also went straight to the final in that event Um, so I went from no ranking straight up to 800 in the world Um, and that was a that was in a tournament um, in a island well on an island called Jeju Island which was off the south of Korea Um, so that that was pretty memorable because like I had one night of thinking yes I've got my first ATP point and then a few days later I was in the final so that's where I'm going back to where I said just getting one ATP point it really didn't feel that big a deal to be honest definitely yeah I mean that's that's definitely a memorable way to get your your first few points what what was the jump like between I guess the futures challenges and then onto the main tour itself it's it's there's it's funny because it's small but it's big uh, like if you go and watch a lot of futures tournaments and then you watch a lot of challenges there's not you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between the players arguably i think at futures level players actually probably try and play too well um whereas in if you go to challenges is the shot selection is a lot better and, and obviously unforced errors is cut down but in regards to actual winners and big serves and like um huge tennis you can actually see some bigger stuff on futures tour but that's because players at that level are not quite mentally as switched on as challenge level players um and tactically aware i think the biggest biggest note uh, biggest noticeable difference for me was when 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 i stepped up to the challenger level um i used to slice my back end a lot especially during the latter stages of my career um in futures events i would get away with it and it would be a lot of a lot of players when i stepped up to challenger level that was when players would just pick it apart um and that was interesting because you you're only talking about a couple hundred spots in ranking terms but there was tactically there was a big difference there yeah i mean talking about the small kind of differences but jumps in in rankings it was I saw a fair few articles where you were talking about grind and the financial strain for a player ranked outside the top 100 because a lot of people will see the prize funds for a tournament like Wimbledon, even as a ranking point, still got that £35 million prize pot. And they'll think, you know, tennis players are earning lots of money. But obviously, it is a real challenge and a real grind for players outside the top 100 to to sort of make a living. I mean, how much stress did this cause you uh, trying to balance like your playing career and feeling like you weren't really earning enough money to support uh, yourself and your family? Huge stress. I mean, ultimately, that was the reason why I stopped playing. Um, I mean, I was I was fortunate. Uh, I had um, funding from the LTA from the age of uh, 19 till 23. Um, so... So I had four, four and a half years of, of and I'm, I'm not going to lie, very, very helpful and supportive funding from the LTA. So that obviously enabled me to get to certain places in my career. Um, but then when um, essentially I was dropped by the LTA and their sponsors, Aegon, that's when tennis became a completely different sport for me because I would be, I would be 
going to the other side of the world and playing matches and that would be to pay for my rent. Um, and when you have those sort of pressures, um, it's very difficult. Arguably, everyone else is in the same boat. Um, not all countries have financial support like the LTA give out. So uh, it's a, it's a small it's a small excuse. However, it is it is a reason for for probably why I didn't get to as high as I could have done. Yeah, it's not easy. Like when you're playing against other players and you know they don't have any financial stress, then you're you're definitely fighting an uphill battle. Mm. You know, you, you talked about the sort of prize monies at these lower tournaments are just not enough. Um, has, has the tour done anything about it since you retired? Has anything changed in, in that time? Yeah, it, they, yeah, it has, um, annoyingly. Um, <laughs> from what I understand, they, they have upped the prize money, like the minimum level um, has gone up. Um, and I think they're trying to make a difference in that. The, the first year I played Wimbledon, um, so it's not just the small events, it's also the bigger events as well. It's not as if they're just making a, um, a difference to the, the bottom end of the sport. But yeah, the first, the first year I played Wimbledon, my prize money for first round, l- losing first round, um, was £11,000. Now, I think the prize mean I think the prize money now for losing first round is around 40,000, 42,000. Wow. So it's, it's gone up a lot. And I think the way the prize money works, it almost doubles every round. It's, it's huge. It's, if you win a round at Wimbledon, you're, you're talking about like a huge deposit for a property. It's, it's, it's kind of set you up for money, set you up for life money just by winning one round. So that's where for some tennis players who really need that money, when, when you get to match point or you get to serving for the match and, and you know that that, mat, that could change your life, then it's, it's a different um, kind of feeling. So those kind of thoughts in your back ahead then, like like during the match, is like definitely, definitely. I, I remember, I remember. Um, so this was when this was towards the end of my career. I was playing um, Eastbourne, uh, the Eastbourne ATP event. I was in last round qualies against Matthew Ebden, the Australian, the Australian player, and I was serving for the match at five four. And I remember, I can literally remember thinking at the change of ends as I was, and this was on the show court as well. So it was in front of a, a big audience. Um, I can literally remember thinking, oh my God, if I win, if I serve this game, I've, I've made myself five grand and that, that is going to fund me for the, like, the next few months. And I got broken. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, I can actually remember the very first point of that next game. And I, I serve volleyed and I hit a great serve, great wide serve, a great volley into the other corner, and he hit the most ridiculous backhand passing shot up the line. <laughs> um, so it wasn't as if I actually choked the game. He just yeah. played a really good game to break me. Um, but I still remember having those thoughts of like financial, oh my, this really will mean a lot to me. I, I do have to like almost counter argue against myself though, because I do believe if you're going to get to the very highest level of any sport, you need to be able to cope with these type of pressures. Um, so it's, it's kind of a catch 22 situation. And then you were talking about the funding and stuff you got from the LTA. And obviously England is tennis is big here and a lot of kind of money within the LTA. Do you think also outside of maybe Andy Murray, of course, that Britain have always kind of, underachieved in terms of the, the success of their tennis players that we've had over the past maybe 10 20 years a hundred percent a hundred percent um i'm not gonna i'm obviously I'm, I'm not gonna sit here and slag off the lta because i think they do do a lot of good things and and i do have quite a bit to thank um for supporting my career 
However, <laughs> there is a lot of um, areas that they they could have improved. Um, I, I, I can't speak for what they're doing in recent years because I'm outside of what the LTA do now. So I'm not really up to up to date with how they're working with the performance players and, and grassroots. Um, but I think on it's, it was a real shame when I was playing how many, how many amazing juniors we had, countless like top top five in the world juniors under 18 um we've had several number one juniors in the world um that kind of just let it slip and those those years between 18 and 21 or 18 and 22 we, we let a lot of players that i think could have been top top 100 slip through the radar i think probably why do, what, why do you think that was management just management of players it was almost non-existent um how how we were managed back then um it was just almost making it up as if like as they went along i i look back and i don't really know why why it was like that whether they were just it wasn't the right people in charge that had had the experience i mean the people in charge back then they had experience of playing tennis themselves but did they have experience in managing players to become professionals i don't know um like one one player for me that didn't end up being top 100, which was absolutely criminal, other than myself, obviously, um, would be Alex Bogdanovich, um, because I, I trained with him a lot, and this guy wasn't wasn't just one of the best players like I trained with. He, he, he was an unbelievable tennis player. Like, we're, we're talking, I, I mean, I've practiced with players that are top 20 in the world, top 10 in the world. He, he, would have, he, would, he was just as good. I think his highest ranking was about 108. I think he was close, but I don't think he made it. Um, and, and as tennis players, we always look to the kind of the benchmark. If you really made it to the type, like the the highest levels, is top one hundred. So for him to not make it was a travesty. At the moment, like there's a few up and coming British players, such as maybe like a Paul Jerb or a Ryan Penniston, who at that age, rather than go on the ITF Futures Tour or the Challenge Tour, they went off and played tennis in America at the collegiate level. Do you think that's something that benefits players? Do you think there's something you wish you, you could have done? So I remember someone approaching me at the 18 under 18s nationals, which was held in Nottingham. Um, and I was, I was number two seed and I did get approached, but to be honest, back then there was nobody that was going to American university and then, and then going back onto the tour and be, trying to become a professional tennis player. It wasn't really until someone like John Isner, who's a few years younger than me, um, did it. And then people actually pay attention and be like, oh, actually, I can go and get a degree, get good training, and then I can try my hand at trying to be a, a professional. Do I look back and regret it? No, because I'm, I'm pretty proud of what I did. So arguably, I could have done it and not ended up doing what I, I, I did in tennis. Um, however, would I advise it now to anyone? Yes. Um, purely because I don't really rate anywhere in this country to train now. Um, there's there's not many places like you, I mean I heard earlier on, on in this interview you said um, a lot of the British players train at the NTC. I, I don't think they do. I don't. I think that a lot of the British players are sp like sporadic around the country. Um, and as far as I'm aware, I don't think there's any um, top academy um, that are just producing players basically. No, it, it does seem a lot of the young players do as soon as they get like really good they just go abroad don't they yeah a lot of them go to spain france um but these these american colleges um they're rival like they're rivaling the best academies in the world um purely because they've got amazing facilities um and they've got a lot of good coaches because there's a lot of americans that 
were ranked pretty high that are now going into being coaches at these universities. So the setups they have, um, you can't really beat because on top of that, they're, they're providing you with an opportunity for education to further your education and, and come away with a degree. So you would, you would have to almost be like top 200 in the world at 18 to, to turn down going to college, I think. Talking of coaching, um, you are now head of racket sports at Downhouse School. Um, how has that transition been from playing as a professional to, to coaching? It's not somewhere where I, if you had said that to me um, 10 years ago, would I be there? Uh, uh, and, and all girls boarding school coaching, I would have laughed. I would have said absolutely no chance. Um, however, just the, the way my life went, um, it, it provided me with stability. Um, and that was something that no tennis player has when they're on the circuit because your wage is fluctuating so much up and down. And when I stopped, I did start coaching um, a couple pro players um, and I was traveling with them. I was playing a little bit myself at the same time, but it felt almost identical to the feeling of when I was playing. Again, it was not a consistent wage wage packet. Um, there was not much um, stability. So when, when I got offered the opportunity to work at this school, it was very attractive um, in the fact that it would almost be like a nine to five job um, with the benefit of staying in tennis and, and getting some consistency in my life. I saw um, in an interview towards the end of your playing career, you were planning on becoming the um, Jose Mourinho of uh, tennis coaching. Do uh, do your kids yeah. call you the, the special one? Uh, yeah, maybe, hopefully for the right reasons. Yeah. As you get older, you, your goals change. Um, like I have a daughter now, a one and a half year old. Um, and even in my last, like, since she's been born, my, my goals have changed. It's like, yeah, when, like I said, when, when I went into this school, my class myself was almost a recreational coach players that we've got some good players in my school but we're, we're talking county level at most i don't think uh any are going to go on to be a professional tennis player put it that way um however what i provide is is my experience to, to help them enjoy the game and get better which I, I i really do enjoy i do miss performance coaching and and it would have been it would have been great to to go on tour with a player and 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 see how high I could get them as a as that type of coach. But right now, um, at this time in my life, I, I choose stability every time. The way the world is going at the moment, it's, it's, it would be I would be incredibly scared to be back in um, that type of life, not knowing how much you're earning month by month. Are you up to date with a lot of the I guess a lot up and coming? British players uh, on the circuit at the moment. Do you, do you still follow the growth of British tennis? A little bit. I mean, I, I know a couple of the players um, because I've been still playing two competitive tennis um, events that I currently still play myself, which is um, National Club League, who I represent David Lloyd Rains Park. Um, and I also play French League, which I'm currently every weekend going to Paris to play. In my David Lloyd team, we have Jack Draper, Jay Clark. So those two that I'm I'm obviously quite well aware of, and Liam Brody, sorry, as well. So there's three players that are doing doing very well. Jack Draper's obviously doing very well at the moment. On the cusp of the top hundred, isn't he now at the moment? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um so yeah, those those three I'm aware of. Um I, I do keep an eye out. And to be honest, this time of year will be a better time of year because I will be paying closer attention to Wimbledon and who's getting the wild cards. Who have you who who do you reckon's gonna win this week at Roland Garros? I did think the new the Spanish kid, uh, like on the, the new kid on the block, that Alcaraz. He looks like the first player I've seen um, that can 
really challenge the 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 ultimate like four. I mean, I know they're coming to their end now. You don't even Federer's not even playing at the moment. Um, but like that Nadal, Djokovic, um, Federer, and Murray, I think this is—he's the first player I've really thought. Okay, you're the you're the next one to to be a superstar because the the ones that have been coming through, I, I, like your teams, your Medvedevs. Um, I personally don't think they're quite the same level as as those four I've just mentioned. I think they're the the next grade down. Can you see it? Can you know when you watch someone? Can you see it like just? the eye test when you watch a player you can yeah yeah i can um do you know what there's one player i i and i've, I've played against him and I, I i'm not trying to big myself up here I, I i did actually beat him however that was um at the younger age of his career um who i did think would go on to be one of like those big top four players um which was uh dimitrov um the way he played was so so similar to federer and i've not seen anyone move around a tennis court as well as that guy can do to become that absolute superstar you need to be a robot um not only on the tennis court but also in your private life um and the dedication i don't think he has quite the same levels as your, your Djokovic's and the Nadal's. So it's probably what held him back from getting to that very, very top level. Who's who's the GOAT? Is it Federer? Is it Nadal? Is it Djokovic? Who's the best? I think you have to go with statistics. I I, I like my statistics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've put myself on the spot there because statistically, I don't actually know right now who is still, who would be the GOAT. Well, it's like Um, Nadal has the most slams at the moment, but then Djokovic has got the most masters. And then it does seem like Djokovic has more slams up his sleeves as well, doesn't he? I think, do you know what? To to answer that question, I would wait until they've all retired. Um, Then then we can really see um, who, because arguably you could say who's who's been at world number one the longest because that's no easy feat. Um, it, it's tough to argue because they all have their um, their the, an argument for them. Um, but on the eye test, you'd probably, you know, I think you'd have to say Federer. Final question then. Um, I was, when I was doing some research for this, um, I came across the Instagram page with the handle Operation to Transformation, the daily diary of my 37-day challenge to get ripped. Okay. I guess, uh, I guess my question is, did you ever achieve that rip status back in 2017? I did. And do you know what? I didn't, um, I did it on my own Instagram account. Um, I, and I'm actually in really good shape at the moment. I, I, I go through waves of, I'm like a boxer. Like I either flat out train or do nothing at all. And I, I fluctuate like massively over months. Um, but yeah, I set myself a challenge just, just towards the end of last year to do 500 kilometers running or rowing in 60 days. So it was roughly, roughly 10, 10 K a day, basically. And I ended up doing it in 56 days, um, which I was, I was really chuffed with. And that, that wasn't easy. I mean, I ended up realizing that running was a lot easier than rowing. Um, because when you're rowing, you're just staring at a, um, you're actually just staring at a screen counting, you're counting down your meters. Whereas when you're running, you can, it's a distance. You can let your, your, your mind can wander when you're on a rowing machine, your mind cannot wander. And it actually takes quite a bit of mental strength to force yourself to do 10 K, um, like day after day. Um, but yeah, at the moment I'm going through like another, just a, uh, like a, another personal challenge. I just want to get, I really want to get in good shape. Um, I've actually signed up to do the London marathon this year as well. Oh, fantastic. You aiming for a certain time there? 
Yeah, I would like to get three and a half hours would be my like ultimate goal. And then I think I would settle for anything under 345. I'm really competitive. So I would actually say anything over 345, I'll be devastated. <laughs> but I, I kind of like, I will obviously, I'll train hard for that and I'll do tr- the right type of training. Um, but the one thing I know is, and I've never done a marathon before. In fact, I've never even done a half marathon. But because I'm used to being in occasions where there's quite a bit of pressure on myself, I know that adrenaline can take you up a few levels, which I'm, I'm hoping on the day will help me out. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Josh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you, um, the chat, and that was uh, that was really interesting. Really, lots of lots of really good stuff covered. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, mate. No worries. Yeah, any any if you want to ever do it again, just let me know.